triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the one true God who is exalted above all his creation, we have come to praise you this morning. You who are full of life and every other perfection are worthy of all of our attention, affections, and adoration. But we must confess that we have not come here having loved you as you required this week. Instead, we have filled our hearts with self-love. We have become fat on the world, trinkets and earthly treasures. We have busied ourselves with all the projects and programs and plans we think will result in the good life that we crave. Holy Spirit, please illumine our minds this morning to see the foolishness of living this way and then bow our hearts to receive your loving rebuke. Son of mercy and grace, fill us instead with the fullness of your life and spirit so that we may know true joy in you. And Heavenly Father, draw our eyes to your glory that we may truly spend our lives on loving you and loving others. It's in your precious Son's name we pray. Amen. If you have your scriptures open, keep them there in Philippians chapter 2. It's been some time again, a couple months since we've been here in Philippians. So it's always good for us to take a thousand foot overview and find out where we're at. The book of Philippians was written by Paul and Timothy, primarily by Paul, uh, but Paul and Timothy to a church, a local body in the middle of Asia Minor in the city of Philippi. And if you recall, uh, I know there was lots of minor points and examples and nuances, but Really, there's been two major themes that I hope that my preaching from the beginning till now has really pulled out in the book so far. And that's love and unity. If you see, even in, in verse 1, Paul opens, and he doesn't assert his apostleship. But instead, he calls himself a servant of Christ Jesus, addressing himself to the saints and the overseers and deacons who are all in Christ Jesus. The idea there is apostle, elder, deacon, layman, we are all one in Christ. We saw in verse 5, there's a sharing of the partnership in the gospel. In verse 6, they partake in the same graces. They have a unified heart and mind. In verse 8 and 12, they openly express affection for one another. In verse 9 and 19, they're lovingly praying for one another to God. And you read the whole letter, it just seems to be oozing with this bounding together in the Lord Jesus Christ. If we zoom in what we talked about last time, we looked at chapters 2, verses 1 and 2. And there we saw Paul pleading with them to continue the same love and unity that he's already said that they have and they share together. He points out all of the wonderful gifts and graces they have in Christ, that they should continue to do those things. And the reason why Paul does that, the reason why he has to encourage them on to what they're already doing, brothers and sisters, is this. If you remember, or maybe this is even in your own heart, there's this temptation to think that the greatest enemy of the church is outside. That it's an, idolo- it's an I- ideology, or it's a government, or it's a group. And yet, it's Paul himself who says, just a couple verses later, that even if Roman soldiers were to come in and lop off his head... That to live is Christ and to die is gain. That whether he lives or dies, God will be glorified. So he's reminding them not because there's a danger outside, but the reality is there's a danger in the church that exists. That plague hanging over our head 
is our heart's constant fighting with us to turn back in on itself. It is that constant desire we have to turn away from the Lord Jesus Christ, to stop thinking on Him, to stop centering our lives on Him, and instead to make ourselves the ends and the means and the purpose of our life. Sovereign grace, the Lord has been good to us. He's always been good to us. But if you look at the last several years, how he has bountifully multiplied mercies to us. How many times has it been when something has happened where unity could be at stake and yet the Lord has been so kind to us and now maybe more than ever we need that same love in unity? As we're, we've, we've brought a brother back from from excommunicating him as, as, we're, as we're growing and we're struggling with the strains and there's some in here and some out there and we're trying to get to know all these new, know, know all these new people and there's, there's so much change going on. Do you know what the first thing it is that we could lose? Sight of Christ. So now more than ever, what we need to do, what we need to hear is that we're not called to be full of self-love but to empty ourselves for one another, believing that God will love us and take care of us far better than we can do for ourselves. This morning, as we look at that overall message, I have three points. Now it's going to be awfully silly, my points. The idea is I've been praying over the text for quite some time. I want this sermon to be like the parable where there's good seed going out and it's taking root in your heart and I don't want to get in the way of what the Holy Spirit would want to do for you in this. So each point is one word. The first point for verse 3 and 4 is the word full. Full. And what I want you to do is write a negative sign and circle that right next to the word full. This is not a positive thing. I'm not wanting you to be full. So full, and a negative sign, that's verses 3 and 4. Empty is the second point, and I want you to put a positive sign. I want, this is what we're going to long dwell on and focus on. Empty, and a positive sign, that's verses 5 through 8. So full, 3 for 4, empty, 5 through 8, and then it ends with overflowing. Put the infinity sign, that's just an 8 on its side, the infinity sign next to it. That's verses 9 through 11. Full, empty, and overflowing. Let's start with full, that negative attribute. In verses 3 and 4, we see Paul start off with a prohibition. It's a a way of saying a negative command, something not to do. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Now, the weird thing about the Bible is, brothers and sisters... is we have this sense of pride about ourselves that when we come across words like conceit uh, or vainglory, that we have, we can already figure that out on our own. And I, I think sometimes that leads us astray. We need to be careful to slowly think about these things. So let me, let me give you a general definition of what selfish ambition or conceit means, what Paul has in mind. In the most general sense, it's loving and serving ourselves. Loving and serving ourselves. It's the centering of our thoughts and our desires, our feelings, our plans on us. On you. On me, specifically. It's the failure to consider at all. If you do at L, it's very little. The things of the Lord and and His glory and, 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 and all that's outside of us. But instead, it's to focus on me and my glory. In my kingdom, what I desire. The result of this uh, conceit, this vainglory, this, so many translations have so many different things, this selfish ambition, is that my hands are so full of me and the things that I want that there's no room for me to give to others. I can't give way to you, I can't give you what you're due. Perhaps, uh, if none of that seems to land for you, there is a toxic, worldly philosophy 
that all of your children have heard, and I'm sure you have too. It's this idea of self-esteem. What does it mean to esteem oneself other than to think highly of oneself, to put oneself up, to make one much of oneself? Brothers and sisters, that's self-worship. It's the same problem that Eve had in the garden when the serpent tempted her. Do you realize what she wanted was to be something greater and higher? She wanted to be God himself. She thought so much of herself that she deserved to rule the universe on her own. That is the empty, selfish, conceit, vain, glory, ambition, and whatever two other translated words there in the beginning of this verse are. Now, our hearts are awfully tricky. They're very deceptive things, our hearts. And so when, when we hear ambition and vainglory, even the definition I gave, what you probably have in mind is the child in the toy store as mommy is pushing the carpet, and he's pulling all the toys in and just screaming, mine, mine, mine. Maybe you have a coworker in mind that you, you just know that whenever you get to the water cooler, the conversation is going to be nothing about what they've done and how they're doing and all the wonderful plans they have for their life. The problem is, The same self-love, self-esteeming, self-worship exists in every one of our hearts. And our very nature is to lie to ourselves and to convince ourselves that what we're doing is actually for our own good. So I'm going to give you some examples. Some things that um, I've known in my own heart. Maybe they've shown up in yours. But I want to show you how this appears in our congregation and in the world. It's the indulging in pornography. Because the people who are on that screen will do things and say things for me that the spouse that God has given me cannot or will not do. My spouse is not good enough to satisfy me. There's greater joy and pleasure out there, and I must have it. It will be mine. It's drinking to drunkenness. It's the taking of drugs because the life that God has given me is too dull and too painful. I need an escape. It's the refusal to bring children in this world, and this is becoming so very popular. And I don't mean because you have a legitimate biblical excuse. I mean because children and raising them takes time and effort. And I have dreams of traveling the world and seeing the sights and enjoying life. It's the purchasing of toys and games and hobbies to fill my days instead of giving out of the abundance that God has given me for the saints that are in this body or abroad. Because you know what? A couple U.S. dollars will save a village in Cuba, won't it? All i got to do is give a pinth, a tenth of what I have. And everything else can be for me and for my glory and for my kingdom, for my pleasures. It's the ambition The stepping on one another at work, especially the person that no one likes because who's going to care if I walk all over them? As long as I get the promotion and I get the paycheck increase and I get the prestige. Let me get a little bit closer. Teenagers who are in here. It's your nodding the head at your parents as they're giving you the instructions for the day and all the things that they're telling you to do. Just long enough that you know mommy and daddy will be pleased and they'll walk away so that you can go about doing what you really want. To live life the way you want to, free of rules and authority. It's the giving up or not even starting the hard work of discipling your children every day. Because it's so hard that it's just easier to focus on letting them and me have a good time. I mean, they can catch all this religion stuff when they get older, can't they? Why can't we just enjoy life together now? Better that they have camping trips and parties and Disney and, and, and all those things that go on with life. Because then they have wonderful experiences. Later on, they can find out what the faith is all about. But for now, let's all have fun, you and me. Moms, it's the retreating for me time. 
so I can get away from the daily drudgery of life and the other people in it because although we won't say it out loud, frankly, they're all just a burden to me in the way of the things that I really want. It's the failing to rejoice in the successes of others because you know what? Good for them, but really I should be the one who's making headway in the world. I should be the one who's growing and getting more and more and more. It's the failure to forgive one another when we sin. Because it's far more convenient to leave the debt hanging over someone's head because then I can use it to manipulate them and push them around and guilt them into doing what I want. On the other side, it's the not confessing my own sins to others regularly and fervently because, because of my shame, because it's hard, because I'd have to admit that I'm not all that I think I am in my own eyes. It's the skipping the Lord's Day when the body really needs to see and hear you because you know what? It's the only day I don't have to work. And so a little rest and a little relaxation at home will do me far better. And finally, brothers and sisters, it's the failure to pray for one another because all the things throughout the day that have come up are far more precious to me, far more valuable than the minutes on my knees praying for you. I hope you see that this self-love isn't just the gross sins. It's not just the obtuse, the large ones that we normally think about. The ones that we can point to real easily and say, well, clearly that person just loves themselves. It's even the minute, the small compromises of faithfulness that we make throughout the day because I am more important than others. And to be frank, those gross sins never started as gross sins. It started out with just a little bit of love of myself. And it grew and it grew. And all of these things are us trying to wrap our hands around the world and cling on to all those things that we think will truly satisfy our hearts. Because we want a full life, a good life, according to our standards. I hope that'll show you those examples, especially if one's pressed in a little bit, how toxic self-esteem, self-love, self-worship destroys the unity and love that Paul has spent so long in the, in the letter so far imploring and building up. But if not, let me be very specific in two ways. The first is this. Where Christ means to make one body, a unified body, self-love destroys unity. You see, you and I are finite creatures. We're not God. We don't have an endless amount of time We don't have an endless amount of capacity for thought and desire. And so, we can choose either to give in to the endless cries of our hearts for all those things we think are good for ourselves, or we can focus on Christ and His kingdom. We can't do both. The more we turn in on ourselves, the less we turn to focus on Christ, and we build, as Luther said, a kingdom of dung, castles of excrement, little villages for ourselves that we can have all the pleasures of the world, and yet they're stinking and rotten. And when we do that, brothers and sisters, there's going to be dissension in the body because my desires are going to conflict with yours. If your focus is your greatest good and happiness as you see it, and mine is my greatest good and happiness as I see it, they're inevitably going to crash. Something I want and something you want are going to be at odds. And when that happens, there's dissension. And strife, and strife, because I will demand the things that I think I need, what I am due, and I will demand them from you, and when you don't give them to me, We'll become angry and fight with you. We'll berate and degrade each other because we have to push each other down to uplift ourselves, to keep that illusion that my kingdom is actually silver and gold and everyone else is really, really empty. I have the universe built around me. But second, 
where Christ intends to dwell in his people and love us through one another, when we hoard all of our resources and times and talents so as not to waste them on one another, do you know what happens? We withhold the love of Christ from others because we fail to share his gifts and graces. We fail to withhold the love of Christ from each other's. Now by this point, if you're halfway awake, you might uh, sense that there's problem in your heart. Like Israel of old, you might say, a plague has broken out amongst the congregation. Let's do something about it. But the problem is, brothers and sisters, the, the real issue is not just the deeds that you aren't doing or the kind words you're withholding that our hearts have latched on to the world and bought the lie that we need them in order to be satisfied. That we need everything in the world to be content. Yes, those outward actions and those words, they communicate something, they reveal our hearts, that we don't love God and love others. I remember just two weeks ago, that was what Shane opened up for us in the book of Mark. What is the law of the kingdom? To love God and love others. And when we fail it, we know we're failing the law of the kingdom. But our hearts are tenaciously out for ourselves. So as Paul's going to remind us here in a moment, again, positively, We can't change, not on our own. If we move through the text, then the rest of this first section in verse 3 and 4 says this, But in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Don't forget that Paul is writing to a church. He's not writing to a government or a social club. He's not even writing to the church universal. Yes, it is for the church universal, but that's not his audience. His audience is the Philippians. And so that means when he says this, that we have the interest of others over the interest of ourselves. he has in mind, brothers and sisters, the one another's in the body of Christ. Our interest, our concern is not to be for ourselves, but for the Lord Jesus Christ and his church. We are to look outside of ourselves for that good life, not in the world, but in the Lord Jesus and in each other, serving one another. What does Paul mean by humility and counting others more significant? Well, let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It's not that he has natural skills or abilities in mind. If I am a doctor uh, skilled in us. Uh, cancers and James who is a wonderful handyman are sitting in the congregation and someone comes in with a carcinoma I am not going to turn to James and say well brother you are so much more skilled than I would you please treat the patient it's not what Paul has in mind at all what he has in mind here brothers and sisters is that we evaluate our hearts and we understand them for what they are that with Paul we cry out that I am the chiefest of sinners and that we are ready to give way to one another that we see in each other we hope in one another love and so that when we see uh, others with greater experience or more solid judgment that we don't demand our way That in spiritual matters, we look and we see the darkness that's in our own heart and we don't trust ourselves, but instead we look to the Spirit working in the people around us, knowing that He has given them light and knowledge and wisdom. It's what the call to worship this morning, Psalm 131 says. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I don't occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But instead I have calmed and quieted my soul. Hope in the Lord from this time and forevermore. It's a sober judgment of my heart and a failure to trust it. But instead to look to see that God is doing something around me for my good and to believe that it's in you. It's also not a false sense of humility like the example I gave, that simply 
oh yes, I am a worm and you are better than me. But it's a true sense, brothers and sisters, that God has authority over us and that we are to yield to it and we're to yield to the authorities he's placed over us and we're to yield to one another. What then does Paul have in mind when he says, looking not only to his own interest, but the interest of others? The first one was giving way in wisdom and knowledge and preference. Here, we're talking more about physical needs. But this is not a call, and, and some people will make this into this. This is not a call for radical irresponsibility where I don't provide for my home and my family. I give literally everything away and I just pray really hard that money will come in, that the electric bill will get paid and the groceries will show up at my doorstep. That's not faithful. God has told us in 1 Corinthians that the one who does not work should not eat. And so we are to provide worldly necessities for our families. Food and clothing and shelter, as Paul said, with these we will be satisfied. It's also not building up our own comforts. It's not spending our lives and our money and our talents to make ourselves feel better and to lull ourselves with worldly pleasures. It's not trying to do for ourselves what only Christ can do, which is to satisfy our hearts and to make us joyous, peaceful people. No, what Paul is saying here is that we are to be dependent on God for everything and to acknowledge that God is at work in the body, that his word is in us and around us and is preached to us, and so we are to love each other well. If God loves me and he loves you, then I am to love you because God loves you. This fullness of ourselves, it's a fixating on our own pleasures and plans. And brothers and sisters, these things are going to ultimately taste like death. They're going to destroy love and unity in this body. And we don't really realize how much it actually also destroys true freedom and joy. The fullness of ourselves is going to leave us actually quite empty. As finite creatures, we only have so much time, so much energy, so much ability to think and reason. And when they're all wasted on ourselves... The life that we have, that we want, is never going to come to us. It's going to come apart. Either Christ will be Lord, and we will enjoy much peace and joy and hope, or we will spoil ourselves and be spoiled away with the world as it wastes away. This is an impossible task, to choose the Lord and not ourselves. We can't on our own turn to the joy of self-forgetting. But the wonderful news, brothers and sisters, is Paul hasn't left us here like a self-help guru. Like one of those uh, great conference speakers that'll give you the list of five things, if only you do it, everything will work out. I don't know if you've ever tried that. None of those things actually ever work out. They're snake oil salesmen. No. Paul is also not like a clinical expert who would tell you in all the messiness of your life as you struggled and strained to be full of yourself, that depression, that worry, that anger, anxiety, all those things that are spilling out of your heart as a result. Paul is not saying, hey, take two commandments. Call me in the morning. Everything will work out. No. We have to understand something very clearly about these two verses, brothers and sisters. The command that Paul gives here is just another way of summarizing the law. Love God and love others. And when we look at the law, we can't fulfill it. But you know what it's really, really good at doing? Diagnosing our hearts. Diagnosing them. Showing us the disease that's among us. The toxin that resides in every one of us. The nerve gas that could break out and destroy us. This congregation. But the cure is what comes next. And the beauty of this is if, if you're like me, if you're like me, sometimes it's really hard for me to know where I love myself. And I start to panic and I wonder, um, what am I going to do until I figure out all the areas of my life that I'm actually sinning? Because then I, then I can do away with them and actually find joy. Brothers and sisters, you know what the cure, 
here's the wonderful thing about the cure that we're about to receive. It's so total and absolute. Its effectiveness is so complete that it doesn't just deal with the pride that we know about. Oh, it does do that. It doesn't just deal with the pride and the self-love that we haven't yet discovered in our hearts. No, the cure is so good that it's even a preventative measure about against pride that has not yet developed in our hearts. It really is a panacea for the cancer in our souls and the measure that will prevent us from falling again. So let's look at that. Uh, the second point, empty, verses 5 through 8. If you know anything about me, you know we're about to turn to the only cure. It must be the Lord Jesus Christ, and surely it is him. We read in verse 6, and I'm going to skip a little bit. This is the sermon trick here. I'm going to skip a couple words. Who, though he was in the form of God. you, We could spend a long time unpacking this, and there is an endless number of theological controversies that deal with with this section, I just want to simply assert this, that the Lord Jesus Christ, before, during, and after his incarnation, was God of God, light of light, same nature, nature, essence, and glory as the Father and the Spirit. There is no doubt that Christ Jesus is God, period, full stop. I don't know if you know it, but Isaiah 6 is actually not about the Father, nor is it about the Holy Spirit. If you turn to John 12, 4, and I don't want you to do it right now, you can do it later, you find out that the holy inspired apostle says, the one whom Isaiah saw seated on the throne, surrounded by angels, in a throne room with rainbows and glory, gold and light, so blinding that even the angels can do nothing but hide their eyes and cry, glory, glory, glory. That is the Lord Jesus Christ, seated on his throne, ruling from heaven, being worshipped, honored, and praised. The fullness of God did come dwell in flesh in the man, Jesus Christ but was always present in the deity of the Son. And when we look at Isaiah 6, we find that there is no higher place of deserving, of honor and glory and praise. But then the scriptures take a turn, a very confusing turn. He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Well, what does that mean? It may cause you to scratch your head. Is the son saying he doesn't want to be God anymore? No, brothers and sisters, this is the start of Paul describing Christ's humanity. You see... When he came to earth, he did not strive for the same glory that he had when he was in heaven. He didn't try to act like he was still seated on the throne in the throne room of Isaiah 6. No, brothers and sisters, like a prince in a foreign nation, when he was on earth, he did declare that he was God. Make no mistake, I don't care what some scholar says. He repeatedly asserted that he was God while he was on earth. But although he declared his title, he never asserted his own power. In the flesh, he didn't elevate himself. I don't know if you realize it, but John later in the Gospels tells that no man has ever seen God. Well, what about all the Old Testament scriptures that talk about seeing God? Well, what John means is no one's ever seen the Father. Jesus Christ shows up all over the Old Testament and when he does, you know what? It's usually in the form of an angel or a glorious vision or a bush burning or, or any number of things that are too wonderful for the mind to comprehend. Men fall down, they worship, they, they cower in fear at the sight of the Lord Jesus Christ pre-incarnate. And yet, when he came in the flesh, he didn't show up as an angel. 
He didn't walk around glowing all the time. Instead, this is what he says of himself in John 8, 54. If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. As he did miracles, catch this. He didn't tap into his divinity. He didn't call on his glorious nature to to heal and to cast out demons. No, he humbly submitted to God and did them by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's why you don't see Jesus doing miracles before his baptism when the Holy Spirit comes on him in its fullness. No, brothers and sisters, the glory of our Savior is Mark 10.45. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He left Isaiah 6 to become homely. Isaiah 53.2 says that he had no form or majesty that we should look on him and no beauty that we should desire him. He didn't even show up as a good-looking man. No, he was acquainted with grief and sorrows so that as people passed by, they hid their faces and esteemed him not. He kept nothing for himself, but he emptied himself all the time. How often was he tired and weary, and yet he would go to the people and pray and preach and heal. He'd go days without food and sleep, There was nothing he wouldn't give for God's people and to glorify his Father. The food that he had was to do the will of the one who sent him. And yet you and I, well, he empties himself. We cling to everything that we can grab onto. Scriptures add, but he emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. So easy for us to kind of run over this and go, yeah, yeah, that's the incarnation. Do you realize all of these verbs are active? No one did this to Christ. He did it himself. He humbled himself. He emptied himself. He took on flesh. He was not led. He was not pulled. He was not coerced. No, brothers and sisters, he was compelled by the love of his people and the unity of the Godhead. This was a self-voluntary emptying. And he did it to the point of obedience, full obedience. The scriptures say he humbled himself by coming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Do you realize what Christ's obedience cost him? He was thankless, the work he did. He heals lepers, and most of them don't even come back and say thank you. He's constantly challenged scribes and Pharisees. Where did you get your authority, Lord Jesus? Tell me, so that maybe we'll recognize you. He was abused. He was spit on. His beard was pulled. He was slapped, constantly in threat of being killed and stoned, chased off a cliff. He was tempted and tried. Satan in the wilderness, the very first thing when he starts his, his, his mission journey to spread the gospel is what? Satan confronts him and tries to appeal to him. How about this? The very parents and magistrates and rulers that he created and planned before all time, he had to submit to treat as worthy of honor when he is the one who is worthy of all glory and honor. We want our own way and yet he submitted to the way of the Lord in everything. Even to the point of death on a cross. We fight for our own lives so hard. The life that we want, we think it's in all the things around us and all the desires and plans of our heart and we cling to them. And what did Christ do? He willingly gave himself up for his people. It would be really hard if I just stopped right there, wouldn't it be? 
When I was a kid, many of you will remember this, younger ones will think I'm an old geezer for saying this, but I remember when what would Jesus do was the, was the theme of everything. Bracelets and parties and VBS. Here's the problem, brothers and sisters. If I stop here and all he is is an example, you and I can't do this. I can't empty myself. I can't give myself. I love myself far too much. So how then is Jesus the cure for my self-love? It's in the phrase at the start of this section. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Have this mind means that Christ must have made it available to us. How? He made the power we need for humility available when he completed his work on the cross. When he died and descended into Sheol, he disarmed the rulers and authorities of this world. He stomped on all of the powers that could oppress us. Satan was bounded, the strong man bound up so that he could free us. Sin lost its power. Death lost its sting. And then he pardoned us for all of the sins that we've done in disobedience, freeing us from the law hanging over our head like a guillotine, threatening to put us in hell forever. And then you know what he did? He gave us his righteousness so that we could approach a holy God and draw near to him. And maybe this is the sweetest thing it is for me. He took us into his bosom and joined us to himself. That in him, the Holy Spirit would belong to us. That we would be buried in baptism with him. So that our sins would be dead to us. And then he raises us to new life in baptism. So that we live now the new life of Christ in us. Not by our own strength. Not by looking to our good works. But by looking to him who did it all. Our obedience to God is going to lead to death. It's going to lead to death. It's going to be the death of ourselves. I guarantee it. It's going to be the picking up of our crosses daily and denying ourselves. And brothers and sisters, it might even lead to physical death. And we're going to share in his shame and as we're mocked by the world and the people that we love most as we turn away from all of the things that are not what God wants for us and we obey him. But we are to follow him knowing that in Christ we can accomplish this obedience. By stopping, by stopping the thing that our heart wants to do. Striving to work it up in ourselves. But instead, turning our eyes from from our performance, turning our eyes away from my needs and my desires, and instead looking long and hard at the beautiful face of Jesus and seeing what he has done for us and is still doing for us. Brothers and sisters, do you realize that Christ has not stopped working for you? He didn't go to heaven on a retreat. He sat down at God the Father's right hand and is still praying for you. Praying for you. And will the Father deny the prayers of his Son? Never. Never. May it be the day of blasphemy when we say that the Son doesn't get heard by the Father. So the mind is available to us by union with Christ and the Holy Spirit. But there's, if you don't have the ESV in front of you, and the ESV is not bad, don't get me wrong, the translation is very good. But there's another thing that's going on here that another translation, if you have it in your lap, might help point it to. The reason why you can have this mind is because, as the NASB and others say, because it was the mind that Christ had. It's also in Christ Jesus. When Christ Jesus lived on this earth, he was set on emptying himself and giving of himself. And who was Christ attracted to? If you think long and hard about Christ's ministry, who was he attracted to when he was in Jerusalem and Judea and Galilee and Samaria? Where did he go? Who were the people he attended to? 
the weak, the hungry, the poor, the empty, the thirsty, the sick, and the dead. Do you know who he was not attracted to? The wealthy, the strong, the gluttonous, and the drunkard. The one who was getting all that he needed in life. Christ is very attracted to us when we confess what's actually true. That for all the fullness we've tried to be, we're actually quite empty. And if we'll just churn and receive him, maybe for the first time, maybe for the millionth every day, every morning being reconverted, as Calvin said, do you know what happens? We don't have to try to empty ourselves. But as we look up and see Christ, this one who loves to fill empty things, the one who likes to spend himself to build up the weak, our hands will open and our idols will drop. And instead, all of his fullness will meet all of our emptiness. You and I can stop striving to be full and content and pleasing ourselves and receive everything we need in him. Do you realize that's what Matthew 5 is about? So many people go to Matthew 5, the Beatitudes, blessed are, blessed are, and they think it's a new law. They think, they think that we just have to try to be humble and, 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 and poor in spirit. Brothers and sisters, you're poor in spirit. There's nothing good in you. You're empty. If there's anything in you, it's garbage because you've piled up the world in your hearts. No, Matthew 5 is about this. It's Jesus' declaration to stop. To stop. Stop thinking about yourself. Stop worrying about yourself. Stop looking at what you can do for yourself. And instead, look at the one who has all the fullness in him. Alexander Gross wrote a very helpful book, The Expedient Uses of Christ. And I go back there regularly because it reminds me how my need is so suited to my Savior. The humility I need is not in me, it's in Christ. The holiness I need is not in me, it's in Christ. The bread of life, the, the, the well of eternal life, that drink, that that hunger and thirst, that's what's in me. Everything that I need is in my Savior. And not just a little bit, brothers and sisters. I, I fear that sometimes we think that God is in heaven with a dropper, just wanting to give us just a little bit of grace here and there. Oh, yes, yes, yeah, I, I'll get through today because he's just going to give me just enough to cross the finish line. Brothers and sisters, that's blasphemy. Because it belittles Christ. The fullness is in him, and it is always for those who believe in him by faith. And it's not just a little bit. The fullness is for you now and now and now and all into eternity. And it'll never run dry, and it'll never be too little. It'll be more, abundantly more than what you could ever hope or desire or need. Our Savior's arms were full of glory and deservings, but he freely gave it all away even while we were clinging to our idolatry. So that he kept nothing for himself, but abounded even towards us. And even still, brothers and sisters, our Savior gives to us in his office as his prophet, priest, and king. If you look at our confession, that didn't stop when he, when he was on earth. It was both well in earth and in heaven. And here's the good news of that. So that we don't have to strive alone for ourselves to empty ourselves but instead we can displace every idol with his joyous life. He causes us to exchange our worthless idols for the living God. And he meets all of our emptiness in its full extent. We need but to draw our eyes to the Lord Jesus Christ, and he will do this for us. Quickly, because I got preachy. Uh, last point, overflowing, verses 9 through 11. I'm sorry, I just love my Savior, and when I get there, I just linger too long. The verse ends with a declaration 
of Christ being exalted so that every knee will bow and every tongue confess to the glory of God the Father. Notice that this is Christ's exalted humility. God finds the humble heart precious in his sight and he's willing to give it great rewards. And Christ received those rewards because he had the greatest humility. Look at what God holds out for us in eternity. The first is joy. Out of the anguish, he should see and be satisfied. That's Isaiah 53, 6. Christ, even out of the anguish and pain of dying on the cross, was satisfied on the other end. His sorrows and sufferings ended with death. When our eyes are set on Christ, to be with him is the most pleasing thing. And when we die and we go and be with him, after life being of, of emptying ourselves, guess what? We will forever be full of joy. Christ had the highest position The greatest humility led him to be the most exalted humanity ever so that all heaven and earth and even hell, that's what it means to be heaven and earth and under the earth, will have to acknowledge him. When we empty ourselves because we've looked long in the face of Christ, when we are emptied, we don't empty ourselves, when we are emptied by looking long in the face of Christ, guess what it means? We get to join with Christ in his royalty. And becoming royalty, we are in his court and we take in his privileges forever. His privileges forever. And there's many of them that you could think of, including relation with the Father and the Holy Spirit. He also got rest in his exaltation. Christ's work was completed, and he could now enjoy the benefits of it. It was done. The suffering and the sorrow of emptying himself was done. And now he could enjoy sitting at the right hand of God the Father. Those who are empty and tired and hungry at the end of life are going to get a banquet. If we look at Christ and he empties us of ourselves and and, and we live for loving God and loving others, there is a banquet in heaven. Food and drink more glorious than you can think of without end. And you know who doesn't take part in that? The person who's gluttoned themselves on life. Because they'll have no room in their stomachs and no taste for it. Second, notice, and this is the very end, this was all to the glory of God the Father. Jesus, in emptying himself, was the instrument of God's glory. Jesus was the means by which God most glorified himself as Jesus purchased a people through his obedience and dependence on God. And we get to participate in that same glory. In a high priestly prayer, Jesus says, Father, glorify them as you have glorified me, them in me. As we pick up our crosses and deny ourselves, as as we look to Jesus Christ and he builds in us a love for God and for others, we get this joy. Psalm 149.5 says, Let the godly exult in glory. Let, the, let them sing for joy on their beds. Glorifying God for a saint is the most joyous, satisfying thing that there is. We'll do that as we look at the face of Christ. Finally, Christ was the ends of God's glory. This was the purpose that Christ went into the world. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me. John 17, 4. But then he says, God, glorify me, the very glory I had with you before the foundation of the world. You see, the purpose of glorifying that fulfills the purpose for watch why we are created, and it brings us both freedom and contentment. Joined to Christ, we participate in glorifying God by submitting to him. No longer looking to ourselves for all of our needs and our wants and our desires, but looking to Christ, who is abundant towards us. Christ gave up what he could not keep on earth to gain what he could not lose. And all those in him can forget themselves, being emptied of all of our selfish love and staring longingly into the face of Christ, exchanging empty trinkets for the fullness of God, so that we can join everlasting exaltation in him as we glorify and enjoy our King. Let us pray.